without further talking of myself, I want to pass you on to Martin Robbins, who does a hell of a lot of blogging on um, pseudoscience. He works for, he blogs for The Guardian and The New Statesman, and today he's going to talk to us about bad science goes, uh, goes to Af- uh, Africa, tracking homeopaths in East Africa. Thank you very much. Um, hi, yeah, so I'm Martin. Um, obviously, with the headset microphone, I look a lot like Britney Spears, but don't be fooled. Um, and we are apparently a bit of a fire hazard in there. But luckily, they've put really heavy lamps by the windows, so if you just grab one of those, smash the window, and go out that way as fast as you can, everything will be fine, and nobody will die, which is unusual. Um, so... Um, in the last uh, couple of years, I've been going back and forth to East Africa and trying to track down homeopaths in, uh, in East Africa to find out what it is that they're up to. Um, and one of the comments I had from a lot of people, primarily my mother, was, uh, why are you going all the way to Africa? Don't you realize there are lots and lots of stupid people back here in the UK? Um, and this is very true. Uh, we have a whole... C- <laughs> We have a whole cavalcade of stupid people at almost every level of society. There are stupid people wandering around in the streets outside right now. The person next to you may well be a stupid person. Um, I've created some examples here of stupid people. Uh, uh, see, if, see if you know who these people are. Top left, must know her because she's been on... Uh, Doris, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, surely she's famous to all of you from I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of It. Um, <laughs> Which is like the gift that kept on giving when it was on. Um, and, and next to her is another MP, David Trudinik. Um, Doris obviously believes that a fetus can punch its way out of the womb. And, um, and David Trudinik, uh, as well as being a major supporter of um, homeopathic hospitals, uh, also believes that surgery is more successful during a full moon because um, obviously your blood has tides, uh, which is you know, why you always feel shit in the mornings because it's like gravity and stuff. I don't know. Um, and the two of them were, were the um, conservative representatives on the Health Select Committee in the House of Commons, which is a very comforting uh, thing. Um, at the time, this was the source of like one of the only PCC uh, press complaints commission threats that I've ever had, because uh, I wrote a piece about both of them with the headline like referring to them as dumb and dumber. <laughs> and the Dean Dorries wrote to complain that I'd called her dumb, uh, at which point... <laughs> I had to explain that, no, when I used the words dumb and dumber, it wasn't you I was calling dumb. Um, bottom, uh, bottom left there, you must know. Very, very popular in Wales, where I went to university. Prince, Prince Charles, uh, millions of years of human evolution to get to modern man, but only a few hundred years to create a man who speaks to vegetables, which is fantastic. And then uh, in the bottom middle there... Yeah, Susan Greenfield, the uh, former respected scientist and now author of speculative fiction. Much of it printed in the Daily Mail, which is, of course, the the Bible of stupidity. Um, In the right there, and there they are with the headline, Social Websites Harm a Child's Brain, which is kind of ironic because Daily Mail harms old people's brains. Um, And there they are taking the piss out of a cancer patient for being too popular because that's the kind of friendly uh, tabloid they are. Um... But we're kind of lucky in the UK because we have lots of very strong public institutions that look after us when things go wrong. Um, one of the best examples of these come from the popular documentary series Casualty and Holby City. Uh, most of you will have watched these programs at some point in the past, and usually they start with like a, there'll be like a man and he'll be standing on a rickety stepladder in the driveway of his house attaching his collection of medieval weaponry to the roof rack of his car because he's going to like a civil war reenactment or a murder or something um so he's like tying all these weapons onto the roof of his car with some like velcro and sticky tape Uh, and then the camera cuts to like a woman who's kind of pushing a pram down the street with a cute little baby in it and she's like singing and all happy and stuff and then the camera cuts again to like an establishing shot of the Eurostar train doing 500 miles an hour towards the town. And you think, oh. <laughs> and then it goes back to the first guy, and the, the, the driver in the car excitingly is now driving down the main road. And he's like, he's like driving, but he's talking to the guy in the rear seat, and he's programming his GPS, and he's speaking on his mobile phone, and he's lighting a cigarette all at the same time. 
when suddenly, inexplicably, the, the lady with the pram lets go of it. And, and the pram, all of its own, kind of rolls neatly into the road in front of the car. And you think, wow, this is a very perilous situation developing here. So the driver sees this just in time and slams on the brake and all the like spears and swords that are on the roof rack go flying off and skewer into the road all around the baby who is miraculously unharmed because it's before the watershed. Um, but, then, but then like the driver accidentally hits the accelerator instead of the brake and he goes zooming into the level crossing just as the Eurostar comes past and he ends up becoming like the first person to die in three different counties at the same time. <laughs> And at that point, you think, wow, this is, a, like a, this is obviously the end of the program because we've come to a really like, neat conclusion here. The stupid person is dead. Um, and we've all learned a really important life lesson, which is that babies shouldn't be allowed out in public. <laughs> but then something really incredible and amazing happens. A paramedic arrives on the scene, and he's holding a spatula. And the paramedic goes along the railway track, scooping up all the bits of dead person in he. He loads them all into the back of a special van, which he calls an ambulance. And he drives this ambulance to a local hospital where there's a guy called Charlie. And Charlie has, like, this sewing kit. And he sews all of the bits of dead person back together again and, like, pumps them full of blood. And then he has those, like, um, like electric nipple pads and he, he puts the electric nipple pads on the person and zaps them a load of times, and they come back to life. And at that point, you're thinking, wow, you know, this is incredible, but this guy's going to have a really big bill to pay. Because there's, like, the van rental, there's, like, the petrol, there's, there's the, they're probably going to have to replace the spatula that they used because it's covered in, like, dead person and the sewing and all that kind of stuff. But no, he can just walk out of the hospital without paying anything because that's just how it works in modern Britain. And, you know, the more you kind of think about that, the more you realize just how much we take that for granted. I could walk out into the street now with a shotgun, shoot my own foot off, and I wouldn't even have to call for help. I could just collapse in the street in a pool of my own blood, and somebody would come along and try and fix me. And that's like one of the greatest achievements of civilization. It's a really incredible thing. And we have institutions like this in every walk of life. We have, you know, the civil service that prevents politicians from doing anything. We have <laughs> the queen who prevents Prince Charles from ever doing anything. We have, you know, the BBC and, and um, you know, a free press that hold each other to account. We have journalists that tackle bad science. We have an NHS that looks after us, you know, however stupidly we've behaved. Um, and the real question for me was what happens when you go to parts of the world where these kinds of checks and balances don't exist? Uh, one of the examples I came across a few years ago is a guy called Joseph uh, Chickalui Obi who calls himself uh, Professor Joseph Obi, um, and he has like a string of 15 letters after his name, all of which are made up. And Joseph Obi, he used to be a, an actual doctor. Um, but he was struck off by the GMC for being incredibly abusive to colleagues and patients and, and just really kind of a rude and nasty person. Uh, and, and some local journalists, he was based up in uh, Nottingham, I think, and um, you know, he, a journalist wrote about him being struck off and he decided that this was part of a massive conspiracy theory against him and against medicine and against um, black people generally. And he, he, he kind of turned this into a thing where he became a crusader um, for alternative medicine because he decided that the medicine establishment was completely corrupt. And this guy spent way too much time in his bedroom, um, but it was quite productive time. He set up a, a Royal College of Alternative Medicine, which wasn't royal and wasn't a college. Uh, it would basically just existed as a post office box in um, Dublin. Um, but he printed out these certificates, which were, uh, you had to pay about 3,000 euros for them, um, and, and, and they allowed you to use the same initials after your name that he had, which, which were kind of equally meaningless. And a guy who you should know around here called Andy Lewis, who used to run Oxford Skeptics in the pub many years ago. <laughs> How brief our memories fade. Um, Oxford legend Andy Lewis... Um, wrote about this guy and he got a legal threat via his uh, ISP, the people that were hosting his blog, um, from Joseph basically saying, I'm going to sue you for a million pounds a day until you take your blog about me down, which is a very Dr. Evil-esque threat. 
but was actually taken seriously. And uh, Andy Lewis's site, Quackometer, was, was taken offline quite famously for, for a period of time until some sensible people hosted it instead. Um, and this guy was just basically a bedroom fantasist. And you would think that someone like that wouldn't be very, taken very seriously, except that in the picture up here, the certificate here is a Royal College of Alternative Medicine certificate. The guy on the left is a British diplomat, and the guy on the right is the president of the Gambia. So Britain actually awarded one of these crazy made-up certificates to a foreign president without any kind of checks or balance or anyone realizing that they'd been you know, completely hoodwinked. And if someone like having fantasies in a bedroom can achieve this, then you think, well, you know, what could happen if you get people who are really organized? Um, another slightly more famous recent example is a guy called Jim Humble, who is kind of ironically named because he, he's anything but humble when you interview the guy. He, he basically believes that he's Jesus, um, only slightly better. Because whereas, you know, Jesus could only heal by touch, Jim Humble can heal by email and telephone. Uh, so you can, like, email him, like, all your problems, and he'll be like, yeah, here you go, send, you're cured. Yay. Um, and and he, he came across in the uh, 1980s, I think, uh, he, he led a team of people into the Amazon for reasons which weren't entirely clear for me. Um, and uh, a lot of them got malaria, and he needed a way to, to treat his men, and he didn't have medicines available. So he concocted this kind of bleach stuff. Um, and he's been selling it ever since. And, and how it works is you order this powder on the Internet, um, <laughs> which is never a good thing, really. Uh, and this, this powder turns up in the post, assuming it hasn't caused like a massive panic at the you know, post office sorting center. Um, <laughs> And what you do with this, this white crystalline powder um, is you mix it with lime juice. Uh, and it turns into, it's not exactly bleach, but it's a kind of industrial water treatment chemical that it produces. And the idea behind this is that you, you drink this stuff in small quantities. Uh, and it cures you of pretty much any condition or disease that you might have. And how you know that drinking this bleach is working is that it makes you feel really bad. And the worse it makes you feel, the better it's working, which is really indisputable kind of airtight logic. Um, and Jim claims that this can heal pretty much anything up to and almost including death. And he's been, he's been trying to um, spread this stuff around parts of the developing world. Um, he claimed to have treated 100,000 people in, uh, across Africa. And um, there's no way really of knowing how many people he gave this to, but I do know for a fact that he was there because he had a, a place set up in Kakamega in uh, Western Kenya where he was using a church to distribute this stuff to the local population. Uh, and it was only thanks to people like Rhys Morgan and others who wrote about this that it came to the attention of the Kenyan press um, in Nairobi and they put pressure on the local health ministry and, and this stuff was stopped. But it was going on for years until that point. And some of the uh, stuff he was doing was quite bad. I mean, this guy, he was in Mexico treating lung cancer patients at a special clinic there. And these are some of his descriptions of uh, how he treated the patients. Again, people with lung cancer are saying, we've got to give them just enough of this bleaching agent that he don't get sick, but he's on the edge of getting sick. We keep him just on the very edge. It's pretty intense for cancer. He needs to take it four or five times a day. So imagine having lung cancer and having this guy basically feed you bleach until the point where you're sick, doing it five times a day, and this going on for several weeks at a time in the case of some of the patients that he was treating. And you start to realize just how easy it is for some of these people to go to other parts of the world without any kind of supervision and just do this kind of stuff. Now, of course, one of the most organized branches of alternative medicine is homeopathy. Um, You've heard of Reporters Without Borders. You've heard of Doctors Without Borders. There is genuinely an organization called Homeopaths Without Borders. Uh, they were working in Haiti after the earthquake uh, a couple of years ago um, and attempted to establish a permanent clinic there to treat conditions like cholera and malaria. Um, although, unfortunately, it turned out that even giving away free medicines, uh, local people were still too suspicious of them to actually take them up. So, you know, if you can't persuade an earthquake victim... then. <laughs> You're, you're not doing a very good job. Um, now, homeopathy, uh, for those who don't know how this stuff works, uh, in quote marks, 
uh, basically, you, you, you have something, uh, supposing you're, you're, you're ill with something, so you, you can't sleep, for example. You would find a, an agent that causes the same symptoms, and then you would dilute it uh, by maybe a hundred times, you know, one part of the ingredient, so a hundred parts of water. And then you tap it a certain number of times. How many times, we don't know. There was an inquiry in Parliament about this. Um, a guy called Peter Fisher was asked, uh, and he commented that, um, that homeopaths hadn't managed to establish how many times you had to tap the cure after you dilute it, um, and that that was something that really needed further research funding to establish. Um, so, so you do this, you dilute it like 100 times, and then you, you tap it, and then you dilute it again, one part to 100, and you tap it again, and you repeat this maybe 30 times for what they call a 30C remedy. And at that point, you've got no part of the original ingredient remaining. It's essentially just water. And you take that water and you dissolve some sugar in it, and then you evaporate the water so that it's only the sugar left. And you end up with a sugar pill that used to be near some water that once contained an ingredient that possibly caused the thing that is affecting you in the first place, which I think is incredibly persuasive. Um, LAUGHTER and so, so the work that we were doing here, we, we had some funding from the uh, Wellcome Trust, and we were out in um, Africa for a while trying to film some homeopaths in action and see what it was that they were up to. But before we did that, we decided, I didn't decide, my um, director decided that we were going to go out on the Thames and attempt to create homeopathic remedies while rowing a boat um, and, and kind of using water from the Thames. And if you've ever seen like the videos by Crispy and Jago, you know that basically making this stuff involves a vast number of pots. So if you imagine like a rowing boat filled with little glass beakers and things, and then me kind of trying to funnel stuff out of there. And there were several parts of this plan that we didn't really think through. Um, I can't row for a start. Um, and also it turned out that when I stopped rowing, the boat kept on moving because of something called currents, um, which just kind of took us... And we were in the Thames, which it turns out is actually quite a busy river. <laughs> so we, we spent basically a day, and then, then I couldn't get back to where we'd launched from, uh, and there was just impenetrable thickets all the way along the bank. So we didn't really keep any footage of there, and, um, and anything we did have we've deleted because it's basically just me in the distance going, help, help, get me off this fucking boat. Um, but that's how homeopathy is made, and it's pretty simple in spite of all the kind of stuff around it. And a lot of people think this stuff is herbal medicine, and it really, really isn't. They did a um, survey in New Zealand where they took people who actually take homeopathy and they asked them, uh, the first question was, do you know what homeopathy is? And the second question was like a multiple choice question where you actually had to say what homeopathy was. And something like 95% of people thought they knew what it was who took it, but it turned out that um, you know, only about 5% of people who took it actually knew what it was, which is, is quite a shocking amount. And most people thought that it was either you know, basically the herb or that it was a, an extra concentrated version of the herb which bearing in mind how popular arsenic is as a homeopathic remedy does make you wonder, like, wow, I'm going to try this concentrated arsenic. That's, um, you know, I saw it in a film. It's really good. Um, and, you know, these people, so these people are using, like, homeopathy for malaria, and this is something that even senior homeopaths in the UK will say is complete nonsense and dangerous. So this is Peter Fisher again. Um, Peter Fisher on, on malaria uh, was saying, I'm very angry about this because people are going to get malaria. There is absolutely no reason to think that homeopathy works to prevent malaria. And you won't find that in any textbook or journal of homeopathy. Um, so people will get malaria. People may even die of malaria if they follow this advice. And that, again, is from, from one of Britain's senior homeopaths. Nonetheless, it turns out that there are a lot of projects in the developing world where homeopaths are going out and using this kind of stuff. Um, and a few years ago, we came across this video, which was taken by um, an organization called the Real Medicine Foundation in northwest Uganda. The Real Medicine Foundation were uh, operating in a place called the Kiriandongo Refugee Settlement. Um, Kiriandongo is uh, a large settlement. It's about the, geographically, it's about the size of London. Um, it has about 70,000 refugees living there at any one point in time. And it's not, it's not kind of like the kind of aid camps that you might have seen on the telly. Um, it's more sort of areas of pastoral kind of farmland where people have bits of land and they exist there. You know, if they've been internally displaced or come in from other countries for a period of time, 
uh, until eventually they're resettled. And it takes people in from uh, people who've been uh, displaced by the Lord's Resistance Army and Joseph Kony and so on in northern uh, Uganda and central uh, the Central African Republic. It's taken people in that were displaced by tribal violence in Kenya after the elections. It's you know people from the Congo and Rwanda and uh, South Sudan and uh, the Somalia, all of which are kind of surround Uganda um, in Central Eastern Africa. Um, and the Real Medicine Foundation had a project in Kiriondongo uh, distributing a type of medicine called Malarix, which they were using for uh, malaria and for advanced cerebral malaria as well. Um, and this is pretty nasty stuff. It was approved by the Kenyan Poisons and Pharmaceuticals Board, uh, and it was created by uh, an organization called Abba Light, um, who sort of sound like a 70s tribute act, but are actually uh, an organization that was set up by a, a lady called um, Didi Ananda Rishira. Uh, her real name is Barbara Lynn. She's an American woman who had a kind of midlife crisis and uh, decided that she was going to go on a mission from God to East Africa and spread homeopathy across the continent. And she's from a pretty, pretty interesting kind of yogic sex. Um, some of the people that they're associated with were involved in a terrorist attack in a hotel in Australia uh, where they blew up a competing group of yogic nuns. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it turns out that internationally yoga is, is much more serious than, uh, than you would think. Um, and she's a kind of evangelist for the idea of using homeopathy as a way of managing some pretty serious diseases. On, on her website, she talks about using it for HIV, TB, and malaria. And she's um, been incredibly proactive in this part of the world. She's set up several centers across Kenya in, in Nairobi and also in uh, regional towns. And she has over 20 mobile clinics, which tour the uh, countryside and rural areas, dispensing medicines to local people. So this is a pretty serious operation. Um, they did briefly try going on Twitter. Uh, not very successfully. There's some quotes from their PR people. Having successfully treated patients with testicular cancer myself, I see no reason not to go to a real doctor. That is a homeopath first. And um, I don't understand skeptics' fight. Freedom to choose healthcare is a right like any other. If you don't like it, so what? Uh, which is a, a common thing that will come across. So this kind of idea of freedom of choice taking precedence over whether or not a drug actually works. Um, and Abolite are very much backed by organizations in the UK. So, you know, the Real Medicine Foundation that distributed Malarix in Kiriandongo is a, an offshoot of the World Children's Fund, which is a fairly respectable multinational uh, charity. And you suspect that a lot of the people donating to it probably wouldn't realize what some of this money is going towards. Abolite themselves have set up a, uh, or Diddy has set up a, a college in Nairobi where she trains local Kenyans to become nurses and doctors uh, distributing homeopathy and trains them in anatomy and a few other things as well. And the center, the, the, um, the college in, uh, the Abolite College in Nairobi is accredited by the Center for Homeopathic Education, which is actually uh, a part of the Middlesex University. Uh, and it's accredited by Middlesex University and by the British Accreditations Council. So you have a British university accrediting a course that trains people to uh, treat uh, malaria and HIV with homeopathy in East Africa, which is a pretty incredible thing. So uh, so the other person we were interested in trying to uh, track down was a guy called um, Jeremy Scher. Uh, now, Jeremy Scher is uh, a world-famous homeopath um, and uh, very popular in the community. He has successful practices in the US and the UK, uh, and he has a pretty strident approach towards uh, what he calls allopathic medicine, or as we would call it, real medicine. Um, so he says, for example, on his blog, the allopaths are poisoning people with pharmaceuticals, um, and he's pretty bullish about AIDS. He says, I know as all homeopaths do that you can just about cure AIDS in many cases, but shh, I'm not allowed to say that, so you didn't hear it although he did publish it on the internet, which defeated the objects of that a little bit. Um, and he's similar to Diddy. He has incredibly ambitious plans. So he wants to open homeopathic schools across Tanzania and across Africa, training doctors, nurses, local practitioners. Um, and he also wants to do research. And, you know, this was some of his speculative plans for research on AIDS. He said, uh, I'm happy to go for a simple trial initially with one arm of AIDS patients 
uh, taking homeopathy and no antiretroviral drugs. Um, so as far as he was talking about, this guy you know, was actually talking about taking people off ARVs and just giving them homeopathy in the kind of deluded belief that it would cure their AIDS, which, again, is a pretty shocking thing to do. And what's interesting about Jeremy Scher is that even if you believe in homeopathy, he's still a dick. Um, <laughs> he says, uh, I have little interest in the many new paths of homeopathy that have addressed AIDS in the epidemic. I don't hear, want to hear what this or that homeopath gave an AIDS patient. I just want to collect the symptoms for myself, like Pokemon or something. Um, so he's a pretty sort of arrogant and unpleasant person, but again has a lot of Western backing. So this guy runs an organization in Tanzania called Homeopathy for Health in Africa. Uh, what that is exactly, I'm not sure whether it's a registered business there or a charity or what. It's, it's pretty hard to find records on. Um, but it's backed by the Homeopathic Action Trust, which is a UK charity. Um, this was something that uh, the blogger uh, you might know called Gimpy found out, and also Andy Lewis has been quite uh, active in blogging on. Um, and the Homeopathic Action Trust, in turn, are an offshoot of the Society of Homeopaths, which at one point was applying to become the statutory regulator of homeopathy in the UK. So this is real kind of establishment stuff. Um, the medicines that he's been handing out are from uh, Helios Homeopathy, uh, who are a, a manufacturer of uh, quack remedies, although they don't call them that, um, based in Wimbledon in South London, a location noted for its fresh springs and wonderful water supplies. Um, and he's operating on the ground in collaboration with a group called Trado, the Tanzania Rural Education and Development Organization, which we'll hear a bit more about in a moment. And so in 2011, we decided that we wanted to go for a trip here uh, to find out what on earth was actually happening on the ground. And this was something that was very hard to establish because lots of bloggers have written about this stuff uh, and other journalists as well. Again, people like Andy Lewis, Gimpy. But one of the issues is that a lot of what people were writing about came kind of third-hand. It was reporting on stuff that homeopaths themselves had said. Nobody had actually been there to try and figure out what the hell was going on on the ground and how big and how serious this really was. Um, and there were lots of kind of barriers to doing this. I mean, the top is a quote from Homeopathy for Health in Africa, which says, uh, any interference from outside would be seen as most unwelcome by local forces which is not something you can imagine Amnesty saying, for example. It's a pretty uh, nasty quote for a charity. Um, and luckily, the Wellcome Trust came along and gave us lots of money, and there's their logo, so I've satisfied my requirement for that. Um, and and, and we, went to, uh, we went to Kenya and Tanzania and Uganda in 2011 uh, for about a month to try and figure out what was going on. Um, so this is the kind of area we covered uh, this blue thing here is ocean, that's the Indian Ocean. Uh, yeah, blue is ocean, green is land. Um, apart from the black, which is Lake Victoria, which is not actually that colour in real life. Uh, Nairobi's kind of... Normally uh, normally there's like a projector screen, so I can go like that. This is a bit more challenging. Uh, so Nairobi is here, up there. Um, Kilimanjaro, which is where Jeremy Shares based, is down here. And then... Um, oh, boy. <laughs> Kiriandongo is in northwestern Uganda, pretty much, over near the border there, where it kind of kinks in a bit near Lake Alba in the middle. And I'm not even going to try and reach that, but it's up there. Um, and so we, we tra traversed this kind of whole area, basically trying to... Um, if you saw like the Top Gear Africa special recently, it was kind of the same route, but on the top half of Lake Victoria. Um, trying to track down these people and figure out what was going on. <laughs> Only we didn't make quite as much of a meal of it as they did. We just, we just got the bus, which it turns out goes pretty much the same route every day. <laughs> you know, thinking ahead. Um, so, yeah, so we went to uh, the Kiriandongo refugee settlement. Um, and, the, see, we, we, we took basically a bus from uh, uh, Nairobi to Kampala and then drove on up to uh, northwest Uganda and um, as we were crossing the border, it was the time of the uh, Ugandan elections in 2011. And um, President Museveni was just in the process of being re-elected. And there were all these kind of um, signs like uh, political adverts on the side of the road saying things like, President Museveni crushed 13 rebel armies in his last term. Vote Museveni. Which is you know, fantastic. I mean, it's way better than election campaigns here. <laughs> Vote David Cameron. Who did you crush? Nick Clegg. Um, <laughs> 
So we so we came into into here just as the government was changing, and they were they'd appointed a new health minister, a guy called Dr. Stephen Malinga, who had a a medical background and who had decided to really crack down on alternative medicine in Uganda. So he'd driven all of the reflexologists out of Kampala. Um, and it turned out that he'd shut down the, the homeopathy projects in Kiriandongo, which was great news. Yay. Um, fine, then it's shit news. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so all this stuff had been shut down. I'm, I'm interviewing this guy from the Real Medicine Foundation and we're saying, you know, what's been the impact here? And he's saying... You know, we've closed down the acupuncture program. We've had to make 20 acupuncturists redundant. It's like, you know, this is a refugee settlement and you're employing 20 acupuncturists. Um, and, 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 you know, it's astonishing. This is, you know, some of the stuff that the aid money there's going to and, and there just seems to be absolutely no oversight that this is going on. But anyway, so, so all this had kind of been shut down. So we decided to go back to the, um, the source of the Malarix, which was Abilite, based in Nairobi. So yeah, so, so I met with, um, with uh, Diddy and Ander in Nairobi, and this was kind of our first meeting. And she was in the process of uh, moving out of the uh, quarters that they had in Nairobi. She's in this kind of compound in one of the sort of nicer parts of the city, surrounded by fences and so on. She tried going into the um, slums for a while, but she decided it wasn't ready for her. Um, and she preferred like people who can pay. Um, and she had some quite sort of right-wing views, I guess, in terms of um, not wanting to create a culture of dependency on her medicine, which is um, you know, easy if they don't actually work. Um, and she was kind of in a, in a bad mood because she'd been, uh, you know, Nairobi's expanding very fast and her clinic was kind of being torn down um, to make way for new developments. And so she was, she was in the process of packing up the clinic and moving out. And she wasn't very happy. Pretty much every question I asked her, she would come back and say, that's a stupid question. Why are you asking me that? Are you an idiot kind of thing? Um, so she'd been out here for quite some time. She'd, um, she'd established, I mean, one of the things to bear in mind is that a few weeks before we went out there, she'd been the subject of a sting by the independent newspaper back home. Uh, and they'd gone to a different clinic and they'd spoken to one of her nurses rather than her, but they'd, um, they'd sent an undercover reporter in and the undercover reporter kind of got one of the nurses talking a bit about HIV and suggesting that they might use um, homeopathy to treat uh, AIDS. Uh, and so we were expecting her to be really kind of closed off, but we just kind of walked in, not even undercover, said, hey, what do you treat? And she's quite happy to talk about you know, tuberculosis and cholera and rosavirus, malaria and so on. Um, and you can't see it here, unfortunately. I, I, we, I think it's to do with the HDMI to the TV, but um, we can get around that fine. It's only really me talking to an old lady, um, and we can recreate that later if anyone wants to. <laughs> um, but what she has here just in front of her is like an A4 binder full of tiny little vials of medicines, and that, she claims, is like 200 medicines, which she takes out on these field trips and, um, and attempts to distribute. Um, and this... Uh, was the entire supply for her clinic on this kind of bookshelf. And I said it looked a bit like my mum's spice rack. She said, that's a stupid qu uh, thing to say. <laughs> so I, I was like, uh, okay. Um, and you can see there's like, uh, at the top there in the middle, there's like a bust of Samuel Hahnemann, who's like the inventor of homeopathy, in as much as you can be the inventor of sugar. Um, <laughs> And there's all these little vials, and most of them are kind of not even half full. They're, you know, you can see the white little pills at the bottom, and the pills are absolutely minuscule. Um, it's exactly the same stuff as if you went to Boots and bought the homeopathic remedies there. You get just the, like these tiny little things in the bottom, and, and that's it. It's not even a quarter full. Um, and I asked her, you know, how much supply have you got here then? Because this was, you know, her entire clinic supply. I said, um, how many days supply have you got? She said, that's a stupid question. <laughs> said, okay. She said, um, ask me it a different way. Ask me uh, just how much supply do I have? So I said, okay, well, how much supply do you have? She said, um, with this, I can cure millions of people for years. I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> now, we wanted to, um, you know, we, we weren't getting very far with her, and we, we wanted to come back at a future point to, because uh, this was more of a research trip, and we wanted to do a, a proper interview with her in the future, so we decided not to piss her off any more than we already had, uh, and we could sense that this wasn't exactly one of the world's great romances developing between us, so, so we left her alone for a bit, and we went back across the border to speak to a guy called um, Boaz Ateno. 
Now, we were trying to track down Jeremy's share, um, but his organization were not responding to emails. They weren't answering the phone. They wouldn't deal with us at all. They were incredibly suspicious of our motivations for visiting them, um, you know, as if we were somehow trying to, like, expose them or something. Um, and so the only lead we had was that Jeremy was working with an organization, a, a local NGO called Trado. And Trado was run by uh, Boaz Ateneo, who's, who's the guy here. Uh, and we brought him back to the hotel and we uh, recorded some footage with him. Um, and his story is quite interesting. Boaz was, uh, he wanted to be a doctor originally. He didn't quite get the grade, so he became a science teacher instead. Uh, and he was an incredibly good one. He was teaching at one of the really prestigious kind of private schools in um, the capital uh, in Tanzania. But he wanted to do something for people back home as well. So he set up Trado and started doing all this work, um, working to empower local women, to help provide microfinance to businesses, to try and bring healthcare initiatives back to the communities where he was raised. Um, and he was an incredibly inspiring man, but unfortunately his colleagues at the school had grown very suspicious of what he was doing. He was dealing with a lot of money, he was uh, talking with white people a lot of the time, a lot of foreign investors and workers and so on. Uh, and eventually a kind of whispering campaign against him grew, and it got to the point where he had a choice between either quitting his you know, pretty prestigious job um, or dropping the aid agency completely. And he chose to quit his job, and he ended up going back home and, and joining a, a, like a local kind of comprehensive school equivalent um, near where he was born. Um, and unfortunately, at some point during this story, he'd run into Jeremy Share, And of course, Jeremy was a source of finance. He was uh, an enabler. He was able to help Boaz with what he was doing in terms of setting up these initiatives. Um, and Boaz had kind of come into the world of, of homeopathy. And the two of them had set up a, a homeopathy clinic in a, a village called Rao, which is just outside uh, Moshi in the foothills of Kilimanjaro. And the setup in the clinic was very, very similar to what we saw at um, Diddy's Center in Nairobi. So you have all these kinds of uh, like pills, basically, again, exactly the same stuff that you can get in boots. It's all imported from the West, the donations and so on. Um, and again, very sort of small supplies, which they dilute further and, and distribute to local people. One of the really interesting things here was when they dealt with patients, they would see them for up to an hour at a time. Now, we'd been in um, Kibera with Médecins Sans Frontières the week before to see what they were up to. And um, one of the things they told us there was that the doctors with MSF uh, that were doing frontline healthcare would see something like six or seven patients an hour. Uh, the homeopaths, uh, by contrast, were seeing that many in a day. So they were spending much longer with each patient. Uh, they were spending a lot more time on the history of the patient, on the problems that the patient have that might not necessarily be health-related but to do with their wider circumstances. And um, one of the biggest surprises as we arrived at the clinic was uh, we discovered that it wasn't just a homeopathy clinic. It was also a school for orphans. Uh, so the place was filled with these little children and um, this kind of uh, the, the teacher who was uh, a, a local AIDS widow who'd been employed by the clinic in order to educate these children and it turned out that Jeremy was running farming cooperatives. He was uh, setting up um, initiatives to help rescue women who were victims of domestic violence and uh, pay for them to move into houses so that they could get away from their abusive husbands and rebuild their lives. Um, he'd set up feeding initiatives. He'd set up education initiatives. He'd set up a local theatre group which had a homeopathy song, um, which I would sing for you now, but I've got a terrible voice. Um, and, um, you know, there, there was this whole kind of wider aid effort that was going on around the clinic that wasn't just about homeopathy. And the two were kind of, you know, completely interrelated with each other and almost impossible to separate. And this was really what Boaz's kind of bread and butter was. But the problem here was that through association with Jeremy, he'd become a target for Western skeptics himself. And rather than persuading him that what he was doing was misguided, it just fueled Jeremy's rhetoric about the idea that they were somehow under siege and that vested interests were against them and trying to shut down what they're doing. Because from Boaz Ateneo's point of view, all he's ever done is try and help local people uh, and to do it as best as he can. And, and he can see that they're doing a lot of good work in the local community 
And the fact is that they are doing a lot of good work in the local community, the homeopathy notwithstanding. But in terms of the reaction from the West, all that he's ever seen is people, skeptics, bashing Jeremy Scher and attacking him by association, saying that he's an idiot, saying that they're murderers, and, and equally kind of inflammatory rhetoric. And so from Boaz's point of view, the reaction of skeptics in the West hasn't persuaded him at all. It's actually made him more convinced that Jeremy Scher is correct and that homeopathy is the way forward, which is something I think people really need to understand and, and contemplate. Um, and then just as we were having a bit of sympathy for him, as we were leaving, we came across a, a girl in a blue dress um, who turned out was, was the, uh, the daughter of the, uh, the AIDS widow who was the teacher at this center. Um, and as we were leaving, she came in and it turned out it was her first day back at school. She'd been off with malaria uh, and we asked how she was being treated and it turned out she was being treated with homeopathy for her malaria. So she'd, she'd been very, very ill. She was having a, a sort of a period where she was feeling better and she was back in school effectively with malaria, not having been properly treated. And um, leaving there, it, it was a real mix, to be honest, because we'd gone here kind of <coughs> expecting to you know, find this Colonel Kurtz kind of villain, you know, crazy person that set up camp in the middle of Africa somewhere and it's doling out all these sugar pills. But instead, we found this weird, difficult-to-pin-down mixture of rational aid intervention and, and homeopathic intervention at the same time. It just simply wasn't as simple as the idea that here's a man, he's bad, what he's doing is wrong and we need to shut him down. Um, but we had a problem in that we still couldn't get hold of, of Jeremy Share himself and uh, this was proving to be quite a problem. We had like a week or so that we could stay in this region uh, before we really had to kind of move on and, and find other people. Um, and we were talking to Boaz and talking to Boaz, but the signs weren't good. Um, after we'd been with Boaz at the Rao Clinic, he'd, uh, Jeremy Sherrod phoned him up. And um, I could only hear one half of the conversation, but I could hear enough to know it wasn't a very pleasant conversation. Um, and Jeremy was really, really angry that Boaz had spoken to us at all. He didn't want any of his people speaking to any kind of Western journalists or dealing with them in any sense. Um, but eventually I, I kind of badgered and badgered and badgered and I managed to persuade Boaz to give me Jeremy's mobile phone number and after a few attempts we finally got through. Um, and Jeremy was quite uh, suspicious on the phone. He was not very convinced about our cover story. He'd checked out some websites that we had and you know, didn't find them particularly persuasive. But he agreed to uh, have his wife be at the clinic and, and to let us visit there and see what it was that they were up to. The only problem was that the clinic he arranged for us to visit was the same one that we'd already visited with Boaz. And Boaz hadn't told him that we'd been there. Um, and immediately after uh, Jeremy Sher uh, makes this offer, Boaz phones me up. He sends me a text message, and just as I'm reading the text message on camera, he phones at the same time. Um, and basically says, you know, never say that you were here before. You know, whatever you do, for God's sakes, don't tell him that you've been to this clinic before. Which posed a real problem because we had been there before. We'd met the children. We'd met the teacher. Um, I'd signed the visitor's book, <laughs> which in hindsight wasn't, wasn't the smartest thing I ever did. But, you know, someone was looking over at me at the time and I thought, God, he's going to lead me into the same room and I'm going to sign the book and my signature is going to be right above it. So what am I going to do? Am I going to, like, fake a new signature? Am I going to pretend that was a different Martin and I've got a different surname? <laughs> so we were in a real kind of pickle. We didn't really know what we were going to do. Um, but then suddenly, you know, just as quickly as the situation developed, Jeremy phoned up again and um, basically said, you know, I'm, I'm you know, sorry, you can't come anymore. There's been an emergency. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you, you can't come to the clinic. So we thought that was, that was pretty much it. And, um, you know, we stayed there for a few more days, just constantly phoning him back and not getting any kind of response out of him at all. Um, and so we went back to Boaz and we tried to say, you know, can you, can you set us up some sort of meeting? Can we do something? Um, but Boaz had very little sway either. And, and the reason I kind of take you through that is just to highlight again, a lot of skeptics, when they see organizations like this doing stuff in Africa, assume that the whole organization is some kind of homogenous mass and that all of the people in it are interchangeable and equally as bad as each other. But what we saw here was a dynamic where somebody was trying to do serious aid work They'd fallen in with a really kind of bad guy who they were obviously quite afraid of at the same time. 
And it was nowhere near as simple as heroes and villains as, as bloggers here will sometimes try and make out. But eventually, eventually we managed to, um, you know, we kept on. This was like the sixth day that we were there just sitting in a hotel waiting for something to happen. Um, and we managed to get a meeting with Jeremy arranged in a cafe in Moshi. So um, Boaz uh, took us down there and led us there and, uh, and we sat in the cafe for a while. And when Jeremy phoned to say that he was on his way, Boaz left and he said, don't tell Jeremy that I was here. Um. So finally, we were face-to-face with Jeremy. Uh, and um, he's an interesting character. He's incredibly charismatic in person. He's incredibly well-spoken. He comes across as somebody who's media-trained. He has a lot of experience in front of camera. He's very smooth. He's never rattled. Uh, the only way, you know, the only real issue he had was that he made the mistake of ordering, like, this carrot juice drink. And so for a large part of our filming, he had a bright orange face which did slightly detract from some of the points that he was making. Um, but the first, thing, the first thing that he asked us about was, uh, or sorry, that we, <laughs> that we asked him about, because obviously that's how this worked, uh, was um, a guy called Babu. Now, a couple of news stories were breaking in Tanzania as we were coming into the country. One of them was that there'd been a series of witch burnings in a local village, Misoma. Um, people had been dragged out into the street, accused of witchcraft, and they'd been burned in the street. Uh, and then the police had come along and opened fire. There had been an exchange of gunfire. And about eight people were killed and several houses were burned down. And it was a, it was a pretty nasty situation. Uh, and so feelings were running. You know, there were some quite high tensions at that point in time. Um, another story that was breaking was uh, a guy could, called Babu. Now, Babu is uh, Swahili for grandfather. And this was a guy who had... Um, decided one day to set up camp by a bush near the Ngorongoro crater. And what he did was he, he sat on this stool by this bush and he took the leaves from the bush and boiled them in a pot of water. And the idea was that if you drank the water, you would be effectively reset um, of any diseases that you had. It would be like you'd been reborn, essentially, and any condition, disease or illness, except presumably genetic, um, would be completely cured and you'd be kind of back to the way that you were. Um, and there were lots of conditions attached to this miracle cure. So if you jumped the queue on your way to pick it up, it wouldn't work. Um, if you stepped more than 20 paces away from the bush before you drank it, it wouldn't work. Uh, if you'd ever done anything bad in your entire life, there was a good chance that it wouldn't work. You got the impression that it didn't work a lot of the time. Um, and yet this had become a really massive craze. And to give you some idea of this, the BBC World Service sent a helicopter up or a plane to, to take some video of the, uh, of the queue that had amassed to see this guy. And people were coming from all across Tanzania, all across East Africa, as far away as, the, you know, in some cases, the Middle East. And the queue at the time we were there was 20 miles long. It took seven days to get from one end of the queue, uh, the queue to the other. And people were actually dying by the side of the road while they were waiting to see this guy. Uh, people were leaving hospital with drips attached to their arms. Um, local bus services were being diverted to carry people there. The army were out there trying to impose some sort of order. And even like the president and senior figures from the Tanzanian government were going to visit this guy and presumably not wasting seven days in the process. And... Um, we asked Jeremy what, what he thought about this, and we'd spoken to Boaz previously, and it turned out that this witch doctor by the bush uh, had taken away about 20% of their patients from the homeopathy clinic. And we spoke to Jeremy about this, and he had a very relaxed attitude to this. He sort of said, well, you know, this is clearly nonsense for a star. I mean, this is just a guy, you know, he's mixing some, a little bit of herbs in some water. <laughs> you know, there's no way that's going to work. Um, but, you know, but if people believe that and they want to take it, then who are we to stop them? And, uh, you know, I'm quite happy for them to do that. And he, he finished with this amazing quote, which was, there's more than enough sick people to go around. There's plenty of sick people for everybody. Which it's just, you know, is, is in a, you know, it's true. I mean, you can't really fault the logic, but um, quite an incredible thing. And again, he had this huge idea about free choice, that basically it's, it's up to the patient. It doesn't matter if a, 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 an illness works or not. If the patient believes in it, if the patient wants to use it, then who are we to stand in their way? 
we spoke some of it about the uh, kind of tradition of uh, well traditional medicine in Africa and how that had helped him to you know by paving the way from homeopathy. And this was something that we observed constantly throughout the trip. So when we were up in the Kirindonga refugee settlement, as we were coming out of there, um, the driver stopped the car suddenly by the side of the road and he went out to a, a bush and he came back with a sausage fruit, uh, which is like a large fruit shaped like a sausage. <laughs> um, plants aren't really my thing. Um, and, and we said, you know, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to eat it? Is it, you know, vegetable? And, and he said, no, 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 no. What we're going to do? And it's, it's like this big. It's a big sausage, relatively. Um, and so he said, no, I'm going to take this home and we put it in a pot and we'll boil it for a few days. And then we drink the water that it's been boiled in. And that's used as like an anti-malarial prophylactic. Now, there is basically no nothing that you can take to prevent malaria if you live in Africa. There are, of course, things that you can take if you're going on holiday, but if you have them for any sustained period of time, they shred your liver um, and you know do a lot of damage to you anyway. So if you live there all the time, malaria is basically a fact of life. And in the absence of any kind of cure or prevention for it, um, traditional remedies and homemade remedies are rife. You know, it's basically frontline medicine for a lot of people across Africa. So it's not really surprising that a culture's taken off there where, I mean, <laughs> you can't even say it's irrational. I mean, if you've got a choice between absolutely nothing and something that, however completely absurd, might just have a one in a million chance of working, and it, you, know, you can get it just by picking a fruit off a tree, then of course you're going to go for the sausage fruit. And I defy anyone here not to do a pretty similar thing. Um, and this kind of idea of traditional medicine in Africa, and particularly their idea of holistic medicine, the idea that the witch doctor and, and local doctors are part of the community and that they spend a lot of time talking people through their issues, they know people, um, it's a very powerful thing. It's also how things tend to work in places like Cuba, uh, which again has a very ill-funded health system where there's not really med many medicines available. Uh, but they, they have quite... Um, amazing results because they have a very invasive health service. They have doctors who are embedded in local communities. The doctor can come into your house and look at the contents of your fridge and say, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. You're eating too many donuts. You're an enemy of the revolution kind of thing. Um, and so this kind of culture of being embedded in the community is a real help to people like Jeremy because they come in, they spend an hour with each patient, and of course it's a very, very similar kind of approach. Now, we wanted to, to pin Jeremy down on HIV a bit more as well because he'd made lots of different uh, comments on his blog and then some of the things that he said here were contradictory. So Boaz seemed pretty convinced that, um, in theory, homeopathy could cure AIDS. But he also insisted that that's not what they were using it for. He said that, um, far from it, instead they were using homeopathy to try and mitigate some of the side effects from taking antiretroviral drugs. Um, and we knew that Jeremy had set up a clinic in a local hospital in Moshi as well, um, and that he was taking some of his patients to get tested for HIV. And again, Jeremy kind of insisted to us that they weren't taking anybody off of antiretrovirals. Instead, they were trying to feed people and mitigate the side effects and, and actually help people to stay on them. He's a very charismatic guy, and to be honest, when you sit there talking for him, I mean, we were talking to him for like two hours or so, he is quite mesmeric, and you start sort of nodding along and believing a lot of what he says, but there's really very little evidence to back up what he's doing. I know that he's working with local hospitals. I know that a lot of his patients get tested for HIV because he wants to see if his pills work. Um, but whether he's ever taken people off of uh, antiretrovirals, I just don't know, because the statements that he made to us contradict the ones that he's made on the website, where he talks about taking them off in order to do research and so on. And this is really, you know, kind of at the heart of the problem here that somebody like Jeremy, even if what they were doing works, we have absolutely no evidence for it uh, because there are no records, there's no papers, there's no organization overseeing them. We don't know how many patients he's treated. We don't know what the success rate is. And often people who are out there, whether it's homeopathy, quackery, or even when it's conventional aid, people will see what they want to see. One of the best examples, a few years ago, I came across a blog post by, um, I think it was a homeopath without borders worker 
who'd been in uh, Burkina Faso, possibly, or another uh, African nation. And um, she was talking about a patient that had come to a clinic with um, some severe lung problems. Seems to be like pneumonia. He had problems breathing. He was choking. He was turning pale. Um, he was in a really, really bad way. Uh, and she gave him some homeopathic pills. She said, oh, you know, I, I looked up the thing for pneumonia, and, you know, it's similar to the symptoms you get if you swallow this berry. So I pulped some of that up and diluted it and so on and gave him the remedy. And so she gives this remedy to this incredibly sick, pasty kind of guy that's kind of on the verge of death, and she sends him away with it. And the next entry in her blog is, the guy didn't come back, so I assume he's better. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's pretty morbid, but, you know, this is kind of the level of stuff that we're dealing with. It's people who are convinced that what they're doing is working, and any evidence they see is reinterpreted in that light. And without these kinds of rigorous note-taking, this idea of what's going on, it's incredibly difficult to, to figure things out. Um, and the very final thing, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me questions like, you know, do people like Jeremy really believe in what they're doing or are homeopaths fraudsters? In my experience, very few people are fraudsters in this kind of realm. They are all true believers. And um, Jeremy finished our interview with a direct ultimatum to the Wellcome Trust, which was basically, you know, we're all trying to achieve the same thing. I want to cure people with AIDS. You want to cure people with AIDS. I use homeopathy. You use your crappy drugs. Um, you know, why don't we all work together and why don't you fund my research and you know, give me money so that I can explore what's happening and, um, and carry this kind of stuff along. And uh, we sent the clip actually to the Wellcome Trust and um, they weren't convinced, uh, to be honest. So, um, yeah, sorry, Jeremy. So um, I'm just going to finish basically with a few sort of general observations. Uh, the biggest one is that it's incredibly difficult to know what's happening in many parts of the developing world. And this doesn't just go for quacks, it goes for aid agencies generally. Um, I was in Nairobi last year um, on an IRP trip, International Reporting Project trip, looking at reproductive health there. And I remember we, we, we were supposed to be dealing with an organization called um, Carolinas for Kibera, which is from like North and South Carolina. It's an aid organization. And um, They'd been supposed to be taking us around this place to show us what was happening and show all their kind of, you know, best patients and all this kind of stuff. It's a very cynical world. And um, it fell through at the last minute because one of the aid workers there suddenly decided to screw us out of another $5,000 because we were there and they were like, well, you know, if you want to go and see all of our special patients, then more money, please. You know, give us, give us five grand. And, and this was just going into someone's pocket. Um, and a lot of, you know, the time, a lot of journalists who go over there are paying local people essentially to act as examples, to act as, um, you know, patients, to act as victims and so on. And there's quite an industry in places like Kibera. I mean, this is a place which has a population of maybe 200,000 people. The population's regularly embellished and overestimated to be as many as a million people by people up to and including the White House, but that's complete nonsense. If you walk around there, you realize very quickly it's nothing like that. It's a couple of hundred thousand people, and there are something like 700 NGOs operating there. And everything that comes out of there is spun to hell. It's incredibly difficult to find any kind of truth about what's, what's happening unless you actually go there. And most of the time, people who do go there are embedded with a charity or an NGO or a local group, and, and so you don't get this kind of information back. And there are no local organizations, local authorities, rather, or local government overseeing this kind of work because the scale of it is too big. I mean, if local governments were able to oversee all this aid work, they wouldn't need the aid agencies there in the first place. They just don't have the manpower or the resources or the finances to track every Jeremy share that comes into the country. And then at our end, the UK establishment just don't give a crap about this stuff. I mean, you've seen, like, there are universities that are helping to set up colleges to treat, you know, AIDS with homeopathy. And, and, and this stuff goes on, and there's no real way that you can go against that. The Charities Commission, who regulates some of these charities, really only care if they're, you know, as long as they're filing their accounts on time and doing what they claim they're going to do in the charity charter, there's very little you can do to actually deal with them. And so it's very, very difficult to get any kind of oversight. The second issue is that even if you took all the homeopaths and the Western quacks away, the competition for them is not great. This is a photograph I took in uh, Kibera. 
Um, and you can see that this is a, a sign on the side of a herbalist's uh, shack there. And these are the kind of you know, diseases that herbalists are treating as basically frontline healthcare. So you've got like skin cancer, eczema, mumps, uh, pain after MP, menstrual, menstruation, I don't know, uh, vomiting, asthma, flu, unconsciousness. Uh, doctor, I'm unconscious, help. Um, <laughs> all this kind of stuff going on. It, it, you know, and and you know, this is what a lot of people have to turn to in the first instance. Um, and then the final issue is that there's a real kind of, you know, people assume that it's just homeopaths and they're going there and they're doing homeopathy and it's a, you know, it's a kind of black and white thing. But a lot of these people are embedded as part of a much wider aid effort. And so we have homeopaths employing AIDS widows, teaching orphans, setting up farming cooperatives and so on, or renting houses for victims of domestic violence. And so the issue you come up against is even if you could kick someone like Jeremy Shower out of Africa, what exactly could you achieve? And uh, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much.